wipe this off. All those kids were, no, I'm only kidding. <laughs> See stuff dripping out of it. I'm only kidding. That was good to hear those kids. Sweet words from the word of God. You know, the scriptures say, that word I've hid in my heart. Why? I may not sin against thee. And what a great place to start and plant the word of God at a young age like these kids have been doing. And they've been sharing with us what a joy it is. Well, it's good to be here this morning. Hope my voice holds out. Uh, it wasn't because I was yelling at my wife, but that does happen. But, um, oops, did I say that? Okay. Uh, this morning we're going to look at a passage in Numbers chapter 16. Uh, Jamel came and he asked if I wanted to preach on rebellion. And I said, sure. This is a great passage, and in it, we, you know, as I was studying it, it just, uh, I mean, we can glean so much out of the history of Israel. And there's some sections in the scripture that I think as you grow in your walk with the Lord, uh, there's some sections in scripture that are so relevant and so helpful for our daily walk. And I think this is one of those. You know, the, teacher, the, script, the scriptures teach us that these things were written for our edification. They were written for our training so that we could look back and get a better understanding of how God works, how God thinks, and what he requires of us, right? And this is one of those passages that are like that. Now, what I'm going to attempt to do is we're going to read it, and we're going to pull out a few um, uh, excerpts in here and, and get some insight into what the word is teaching us but then hopefully I'm going to take the last few minutes and maybe key on one doctrinal truth alright and the doctrinal truth I was struggling with this because there's so much that we can pull out of here that we're going to key on this morning is going to be the wrath of God you know we like to talk about the love of God and the grace of God but I think for the believer, it's just as important for us to understand what the wrath of God means. And as we read through this, I think this is a great, great picture of the wrath of God. Now, in, in um, Numbers chapter 16, there are three main movements in this chapter. And we're only going to look at two of them. The first one is uh, the rebellion, the rebellion of Korah and uh, Dathan and Abram and on there was a rebellion in the camp the second movement is the judgment and that's found in verses uh, chapter 16 verses 20 through um, 35 and then the third movement is is the atonement for a, a rebellion or actually we're not going to really go into that because it's too much for us to handle in one meeting or I'm not smart enough to put it together like that. But uh, as a result of the rebellion, there was a residual effect in the camp. Even after the rebellion, even after the rebellion was taken care of, even after there was judgment, there was still, and this is a good lesson in our very own lives as well. So this morning, what we'll do is let's read first along with me. We're going to read verses 1 through 16 or I'm sorry, 1 through 19, and we're going to consider the rebellion. It says in, in chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Now Korah, the son of 
Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, the, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregations, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Well, tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and it will cause him to come near to him, that one whom he chooses he will cause to come near to him. He says, Do this. Take censers, Korah and all your company, put fire in them, put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow, and it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses is the Holy One. You take too much upon yourself, you sons of Levi. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it a small thing to you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to serve them, and that he has brought you near to himself, you and all your brethren, the sons of Levi, with you? Are you seeking the priesthood also? Therefore, you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. And what is Aaron that you complain against him? And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, but they said, we will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of, the, out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you should keep acting like a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Then Moses was very angry, and he said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken even one donkey from them, nor have I hurt one of them. And Moses said to Korah, Tomorrow you and all your company be present before the Lord, you and they, as well as Aaron. Let each take his censer and put incense in it, and each of you bring his censer before the Lord. Two hundred and fifty censers, both you and Aaron, each with his censer. So every man took his censer, put fire in it, laid incense on it, and stood at the door of the tabernacle of the meeting with Moses and Aaron. So we have here an obvious rebellion, and we're going to try to decipher just exactly what was going on. First, let's look at a couple of the characters. First of all, we have Korah. Korah happened to be, well, he was the son of Levi, so he was related to Moses and to Aaron. Korah was from, uh, the, his father was Kohath. And um, so he was related. He would be like a cousin, I guess, with, um, to, to uh, Moses. And then you have Dathan and Abram, the sons of Eliab, and On. And On, it's interesting, you only hear him now, and then he's not mentioned later. It may be that he just kind of included with, because these are the sons of Reuben. So maybe he was just included, maybe he stepped out. The, the scriptures doesn't speak on them. 
but you have these set of men who uh, have some obvious prestige among the children of Israel because they were able to gather together one way or the other 250 men but not just any men they've gathered together 250 men of renown they were important men and these men approach Moses now Moses we understand Moses was the man who God had chosen to lead the children of Israel from bondage and um, God had used him in mighty ways to bring them and have oversight Moses was a very humble man you know I mean looking at this you might not say it but in this incident I don't know that I would have carried myself as well as Moses did Moses was a very humble man and then you have another character in here or, or a character uh, Aaron now Aaron was a Le was from the line of Levi as well but Aaron was designated the priesthood and it was by God who designated him the priesthood and you can read that in, in um, Exodus chapter 28 he was separated for that specific reason okay so these men come together and they gather up against Moses the first rebellion what I find here what we find here is is that Korah's error was that he figured himself to be a priest he wanted to take the priestly ministry on himself which was not entitled he had a responsibility the Kohath had a responsibility in numbers uh, chapter in numbers chapter uh, 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 4 in verse uh, 15 it says and when Aaron and his sons have made an end of covering the sanctuary and all the vessels of the sanctuary as the camp is to set forward after that the sons of Kohath shall come to bear it so they had a responsibility you have to keep in mind or we want to keep in mind that they were nomadic people that they would move from place to place so the tabernacle would have to be taken down and would have to be handled very specifically and this was commanded by God it says in Exodus chapter um, uh, 28 regarding Aaron chapter 1 and thou unto thee Aaron thy brother and his sons from among the children of Israel that he may minister unto me in the priest's office Aaron Nadab Abihu Eliezer Ethamar these are Aaron's sons so you have two distinct uh, responsibilities it was a very special appointment for Aaron and God in his sovereign will he sovereignly of his own accord the way he wanted to do it designated Aaron and his family to handle the priesthood which would offer the sacrifices and we look here and I think one of the things that we can pick up is is that God's appointment here in many ways is a picture of Christ it's a picture of Christ in the believers right we see Jesus as he steps onto the scene later in his baptism and when he's baptized we hear be here this is my son this is my well-beloved son whom I who, this is my son in whom I am well pleased and I really chopped that up sorry about that this is my son in whom I am well pleased in that was the one that God had chosen so let's look at the text here Korah approaches approaches uh, Moses with these men they gather together and they're telling him you take on too much for yourself that's an interesting term 
you take on too much for yourselves, as if Moses had decided that he would do this himself. If you back up a little bit, and you see God speaking to Moses when he's up on that mountain, he sees him in the bush, God appears to him in the bushes, and then later God begins to prepare him. Moses comes up with these excuses to get out of the work. He's like, ah, what, what, who am I going to, first of all, who am I going to say sent me? And then he goes on and he says, well, I can't even speak well. And of course, that's when God would go ahead and introduce that he was going to use Aaron. And Aaron would begin the priestly ministry. So he's being accused of taking this responsibility on himself. But this was a sovereign appointment. And honestly, we have, we have all through Scripture and even in the New Testament, those who have been, we think we've been going through 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, having been challenged, once you challenge the Apostle Paul as the authoritative speaker of the Word of God, you've challenged and you've underwritten the whole authority of God. And this is where they're going. You have two sets of people here. You have Korah, who challenges his authority as designating the priesthood. And then you have the other two, Dathan and Abraham. They just challenge his authority. They're not worried about the priesthood. They just challenge his authority, and we're going to see how they do that in a little bit. But interesting, as I mentioned down in verse 4, after they approach him, the first thing that Moses does, it says, so when he had heard it, he fell on his face. Because he knew the challenge wasn't necessarily against his authority because it was directly an affront to the authority of God and as he would designate Moses. So he goes on his face, he falls down, and then he challenges. And it's interesting the, how, he's, how he leads them for the next day. And he spoke to Korah and all his company saying, tomorrow morning you will God will show you. He will show us who this is. In verse 6 he says, take censors. Korah and all your company. And there were so many ways I wanted to go here. And I was going to see if we could do a big study on the censors. Because it's important. Why did he say take the censors? When you look at the tabernacle, where were the censors positioned? Where the, where the incense went in. That what the censors, or they call them the fire pots. What is your, some versions say the fire pots. But they were positioned right in front of the altar. Incense was put in there. Fire was in there, and the incense would go up, and the smoke would be a sweet-smelling aroma. Later on in Revelation uh, chapter, in Revelation, I think it's in Revelation chapter 8, when the seals are broke open. When it's broke open, there's, there's the censer, and filled with it is a sweet aroma, and along with it was the prayers of the saints. So in a lot of ways, there is a, the censer is a symbol of supplication. Supplication, going before God, right? And so he would say, let's go before God. Let's let God make the decision. And so they, they go ahead, he goes ahead and makes that plan. The next set of couples, or the next couple of people that, that he talks to is Dathan and Abraham. And, you know, they don't even have, they don't even have the consideration to even meet with them. We're not even going to meet with you. In other words, they did not even acknowledge his authority as a prince and a leader of the children of Israel 
much less the spokesman of God. And however, I believe Korah got them into this, maybe, some, some of the writers would say, maybe Korah made them a promise that there would be a priestly position for them if they joined together with him. But they wouldn't even go up with him. In verse 13, this infuriated Moses. Or in verse 15, then Moses was very angry, was very angry and he said to the Lord, do not respect their offerings. Right? Don't even hear them. What a hard thing to say. Do not even respect their offerings. And then he goes on to say, I haven't done anything. I haven't taken one thing from them. I haven't taken, he said, one donkey. That was considered the minimal. That was a menial thing. Right? He says, and I haven't hurt or offended anybody. Why would they challenge my authority? In verse 16, and Moses said to Korah, and he, he reaffirms it, tomorrow go there. Now when we look at this, we see, a lot. for the believers, we can see a lot of typology. Aaron, obviously, his priesthood is a high priest. He is the high priest. And we can see Christ in this. In uh, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11, it says, but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come, you see, Aaron was just a picture of the good things to come. Christ being, being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, this is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats, calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So Christ was the good things that Aaron would represent. So we can see that. We see Korah's responsibility. We see that Korah probably flattered these people, made some assumption. And Dathan and Abraham, they just didn't even want to recognize, they would not even recognize the authority of Moses. And honestly, this was not a rebellion against Moses. It was not a rebellion even against Aaron. This was a rebellion against divine order. Because it was God who established the priesthood. It was God who had called Moses. In Hebrews chapter 5, it says, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. In verse 2 it says, Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassioned with infirmity. In other words, a high priest is to take responsibility, is to express compassion, is to show mercy. In verse 3 it says, And by reason hereof he ought, he ought as for his people, so also for himself, offer sins. But verse 4 says, And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So when Korah, Dathan, go up against Moses and Aaron, they are going up against the divine order. Well, let's look at the consequence. Let's look at the consequence in verse 19. And Korah gathered all the sons, all the congregation against them at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And it's interesting, that was that same glory that when, when Aaron 
was introduced into the priesthood and was set before the tabernacle, that same glory appeared. He goes in verse, um, in verse 20, it, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. Again, you know, there was another time that God had made a similar statement to Moses when he was up on the mountain. And he came down and he would find the children of Israel carousing and, and worshiping the golden calf. And he would, you know, he would go back up and God would say, I'm going to consume them. And Moses would contend for them. And he does that same thing here again in verse 22. Then they fell on their faces and said, Oh God, the God of spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and you be angry with all the congregation? So the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregations, tell them, Get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abram. Abram. Then Moses rose up, and he went to Dathan, Abram, and the elders. Now you get in the picture here. First, they gathered, they gathered the 250 men. They set them in front of the tabernacle. They all had their censers, right? And they were all burning. And God says to Moses, I'm just going to consume the whole lot of people. And Abraham goes and, and intercedes for them. And God says, okay, tell everybody to get away from them. Now he gets up and he begins to proceed. Uh, he begins to walk. Uh, it says here, then Moses rose and he went to Dathan and Abram. Remember, Dathan and Abram wouldn't come. They wouldn't come. They refused to acknowledge his authority. So he goes to them. And obviously, as we read the text, uh, Korah must have came with him. Because look at what happens. Then Moses went, uh, Moses rose and he went to Dathan and Abram and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation saying, depart now from the tents of these wicked men. So now he's at their tents. Don't touch anything, he says. Don't touch anything of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. So they all got away from around the tents of Korah, Dothan, and Abram, and uh, Dathan. Dathan and Abram came out and they stood at the door of their tents with their wives, with their sons, and their children. And Moses tells them this By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all the works, for I have not done them of my own will. If these men die naturally, like all men, or if they are visited by a common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. He's going to qualify it. If they die just like everybody else, then I'm a fraud, right? If they die like everyone else, I've taken on too much for myself, right? And then, he, then it says, but if the Lord creates a new thing and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men did what? These men have rejected who? Not me, not Aaron, but they've rejected the Lord. And the scripture goes on to say, now it came to pass as he finished speaking all these words that the ground split apart under them. The earth opened its mouth, swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah and all their goods. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them. They perished from among the assembly. Then all of Israel who were around them fled at, 
fled at, the, at their cry, for they said, Let the earth, lest the earth swallow us up also. They all fled. And finally, remember those men who were over with the censers, with the incense in them, over in front of the tabernacle? In verse 35, And a fire came from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering their incense. So they were offering incense, and instead of, instead of God receiving the incense, it backfired of them and fried them right up, just burned them right to the ground. Later they would take all those, those fire plates, those fire pots, and make them a covering for the altar, and that would be a reminder of this event. And this is spoken of all through and many times in the Old Testament as a reminder. Remember, remember Korah, remember the, the rebellion of Korah. You know, um, when we speak about the wrath of God, most people want to think about it as being like, uh, you know, an Old Testament thing. Just an Old Testament thing. When you talk about, in the Bible, when you speak about the wrath of God, it's, it's not just in one or two places, but it's a theme throughout. It's prominent throughout scriptures. We understand that. And when you look in the concordance, it'll show that there are more references in the scriptures to God's anger, his fury, and his wrath than there is to his love and his tenderness. More times. Now, the wrath of God is as much a divine perfection as is his faithfulness. It's as much of a divine perfection as his power and his mercy. And it has to be that way. Because there's no blemish with God. There is no sin with him. There's no defect. There's no defect in his character. There's no defect in his work. There's no defect in him at all. Yet there would be if wrath wasn't in him. I looked up some definitions of wrath real quick J.I. Packard says wrath it's an old English word defined in a dictionary as deep intense anger and indignation and then anger is defined as stirring of resentful displeasure and strong antagonism by a sense of injury or insult and indignation is defined as righteous anger aroused by injustice and baseness such is wrath. Wrath, the Bible tells us, this is an attribute of God. I think maybe a shorter definition would be that wrath, divine wrath, is God's righteous anger and punishment that's provoked by sin. It's an easier way to just understand it. So the Old Testament speaks of it in a lot of ways, but the New Testament does as well. In the New Testament, you know, um, John the Baptist was the last of all the prophets. You know, we see, the, we see the wrath of God being prophesied all through the Old Testament. In Isaiah, it talks about Babylon. Uh, you know, we, we see it uh, time and time again that the wrath of God is expressed. But in the New Testament, it's expressed particularly through John the Baptist. John the Baptist spoke of the Messiah in two ways. He spoke of him as experiencing the wrath of God. Remember in John chapter 1, when Jesus would come up to, to John, John would look up and he would say, Behold, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When he said Lamb, he was talking about a sacrifice. He was talking about a sacrifice that was taken so the full wrath of God could be satisfied. So Jesus, John would say Jesus would experience the wrath of God. But he would also talk to him about the one who executes the wrath of God. One who executes the wrath of God. Jesus, who was to experience God's wrath, would exercise it. John would speak to him in, in John chapter 3. In verse 5, this is what John the Baptist would say. And remember, he is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He would say, Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan, as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And he goes on to say, and the axe is already laid in the roots of the trees. In other words, the wrath of God is at hand. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I'm not fit to even remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with an unquenchable fire. John spoke about the execution of the wrath of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, although Jesus' main purpose in his first coming, it wasn't to execute the wrath of God. Many times he did reveal, on several occasions, he, he revealed his anger at the way that the religious system had set up itself, how it had commercialized itself, how it had made new traditions according to their own standards. You know, Jesus also warned about a future wrath. He warned about wrath upon sinners, and he taught that a day of wrath was coming. I know this is a hard thing to think about, but it's a lesson for us to, to, to grab a hold of. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 24 about a future wrath. He would say, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, he says, then let those who are in all Judea flee the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get his things that are in the house. Let him who is in the field not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are with child. In other words, in other words, the wrath is coming. It's going to be a very difficult time. He says, but pray that your flight may not be in the winter. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world. Not even in Korah's day. Not even in Noah's day. You remember that wrath that happened? Not even in Noah's day. Not even Sodom and Gomorrah can be compared to the future wrath of God that is on hand. 
There's a great future wrath. It's necessary and it's certain. Why? Because like Korah, men reject the Lord. Like Korah, men refuse to identify and to accept the sacrificial office of the Lord Jesus. Like Korah, this wrath is going to come, but it's only going to be worse. But there is a solution. There's a solution to the problem of the wrath. Sin and judgment brings wrath. The only solution is repentance. We're to acknowledge our own sins, our own guilt, and we're to turn our trust to Lord Jesus. We're to turn our trust into his providential work. We're to turn our trust into the way that he ordained and divined salvation. Acts chapter 3, Peter would stand up and he would say, but the things which God announced beforehand, and Korah was one of them, the things that God announced beforehand by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and return that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 21 it says, Whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from the ancient time. He goes on to say, Moses said, The Lord shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. And it shall be, listen to this, that every soul that does not heed the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. That's the wrath to come. And I hope that that consideration brings a little fear to your heart. And it ought to. Why were these stories written? Why does God so, so intent on having us to understand what his wrath is like? In Romans it says it's the goodness of God that what? Leads us to repentance. It's his goodness. It really is. So the first and the most obvious indication of the biblical doctrine of the divine wrath is that sinners desperately need to repent. Romans chapter 10, verse 6, it says, But the righteousness bath on faith, faith speaks thus. Don't say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Who will ascend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. And that's to say, well, perhaps there's something else that needs to be done. That's what that's basically saying. Maybe something else needs to be done. Maybe another offering. Maybe another priest. But what does it say? It says, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we're preaching. And this is the word of faith. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Once we've trusted in Christ, like Romans chapter 5, verse 9 says, we have confidence, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved 
from the wrath of God through him. As God appointed only one priest, God appointed only one redeemer, as we talked about earlier today. And it's through him. There is no other way. There is no other way. So, when we think about the biblical doctrine of the wrath of God, it's not an easy subject. It's a hard thing to think about sometimes. And I don't know, as I studied this, I don't know why the Lord directed me in this, this way. But he knows. There are four things that we can consider. First of all, if you've come to repentance, these things for the believer we can consider. That the biblical doctrine of the wrath of God should first and foremost all motivate the believer to evangelize. Because you recognize the wrath. You recognize how serious it is. Another thing that the, the doctrine of the wrath of God, it's an incentive for believers to live a holy life. It's an incentive for us to live a holy life. Our desire to be, is, is, to, be, is to please God. And it will be done as we pursue holiness, right? For the believer, the wrath of God and the doctrine of the wrath of God, it's a reminder to us of the holiness of God and a measure of God's hatred of sin. He hates sin. He doesn't dislike it. He hates it. He'll have no part of it. We need to be reminded of that. And fourthly, the doctrine of the wrath of God instructs us to not be worried about the wicked. We heard the kids this morning talking in, in Psalm 56, 11. <laughs> what should I worry about? What can man do against me? Right? So for the believer, we don't worry about what the wicked do. Well, they may be appear, it may seem like they're getting away with murder. <laughs> they're getting away with evil. They will come under the wrath of God. They will come under the wrath of God. Psalm 73, 16 says, When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely thou dost set them in a slippery place. Thou dost cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, thou wilt despise their form. And we shouldn't be happy about that, should we? We should long to see the salvation so they don't slip, they don't fall. In Romans chapter 12, and we'll close with this, it says, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We want to understand the picture that this story gives us of the seriousness of the wrath of God. And it ought to motivate us. It ought to motivate us to take action. May the doctrine of God's wrath be an incentive for evangelism. May it be an incentive to us for holy living. May, may it be an incentive for us to recognize how 
much God disdains it. And as we may it cause us, like, like Moses, to be meek. The first thing Moses did, he didn't say, God, bring fire down on him. He prayed for him. Meek. May it make us be meek. To the glory of God and to our good. We understand that this doctrine ought to be a basis for holy living for each of us, right? God does love us. <laughs> he does love us. But he wants us to be sure that that balance of his wrath is always there and we recognize it. We don't live in fear. We live in hope. And yet it ought to project us out there to lead others to hope. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the training that we receive in it. We thank you for the insight to who you are, to the insight of how you would have us to be and how you work in history, how it would strengthen us. We pray this morning, though somber and, and strong, this idea of God's wrath is, how true it is. Perhaps this morning there's someone here that, like maybe Dotham or Datham and the others, who would not even acknowledge the authority of God's spokesman. This morning we have God's word in our hand. Maybe there's some who will not acknowledge the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus as the Lamb of God to satisfy, to experience the full wrath of an almighty God. Perhaps there's someone like that. We pray, Father, these words might encourage them to turn, to repent, to say, yes, I'm a sinner. I've fallen short of the glory of God. Thank you for the Lord Jesus dying for me, satisfying my debt. I come to him empty-handed. And the rest of us, Father, may we be encouraged because of the knowledge of the wrath. May we be encouraged to do the things that we need to do, to build the kingdom, to glorify God in our lives, discerning the times. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.